Good evening. Greetings of peace. Assalamu alaikum. Shalom alaikum. My name is Yusuf Ismail. I'm an attorney, a debate and a public speaker. And you are tuned in to watching ITV 347. You are listening. If you're listening to us, you are listening on the airwaves of Salam Media, on the airwaves of Voice of the Cape. And indeed, you can log in and watch us on the Sukh Islam YouTube channel. Today, we have a special um, discussion and we need a special guest um, that we'll be discussing and sharing some of his experiences and thoughts with us on a number of issues as we tackle and look at some of the um, mechanisms that underpin the American missionary trajectory and indeed its impact on the rest of the world. And that is none other than someone that I would like to be calling a friend in the not too long future, uh, someone that is a, a notable scholar, um, and he is Rabbi Tobias Singer. He's an American Orthodox rabbi. He's the founder and the director of Outreach Judaism. Outreach Judaism is an organization which describes itself as an advocate for the Jewish faith and indeed the Jewish people. And today we're going to look at some of the aims, some of the objectives, some of what it stands for and what it distinguishes it from other major organizations that indeed exist in Judaism. Well, I'm joined by Rabbi Tovia Singer, and he's joining us from the holy city of Jerusalem, all the way in Israel. Uh, Rabbi, assalamu alaikum and shalom alaikum, as we would uh, say to you. And welcome. Salam. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. It's a privilege and it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, you don't know how excited I am to engage with you on a number of issues. I just want to get the elephant out of the room, uh, as you know, we've discussed uh, intermittently. And the fact is that as a rabbi, uh, as someone that is now residing in Jerusalem, um, you don't get yourself involved in the Arab-Israeli conflict. You don't get yourself involved in these disputes between Palestine and Israel. And, and just for the benefit of our audience, what is the reason in terms of why you, in all your discourses, in all your discussions, you don't, in a manner of speaking, ferment conflict um, or, or involve yourself in any of the debates on that particular issue? Do you see that as productive in the long term for you in your engagement in the work uh, that you, in fact, do for Outreach Judaism? I would suggest that, in fact, the elephant is there, but it's not in the room. It's in another house. It's not even in the same building. That means that my work is devoted to a religious uh, defense of Tawheed, of one God, the one God who created the heavens and the earth. The one thing I'm not involved is in politics. Now, I get a lot of offers to broadcast on, on political issues, and I stay far away from it. So this is a, a political issue between um, Jews and Palestinians. And you know, Muslims, I think, understand better than Jewish people about the dangers of politics, given, for example— Possibly the greatest schism in in the Islamic world occur, occurred shortly after Muhammad's death, when the Islamic world endured a horrible schism, Shia, Sunni, and there is the consequences are staggering. The cost in human life was enormous, and although today there are different traditions and customs between Sunnis and Shia, and I know a lot of Sunnis who don't think highly of Shia and vice versa, it all started with politics. It started with a political issue, not a religious debate. All Shia believe in the Quran 
and that Muhammad is the greatest and the final prophet. Yet look what politics has done. It's the damage it's done. So there's, it's not really an elephant in the room. However, it is true. I was rabbi of Indonesia for five years. And of course, I'm aware that this political issue and the religious issue are conflated. And this is very, very dangerous. Mm. Well, let, 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 and, and I think uh, now that we've got that out of the way, um, I, I want to I start off with, um, you know, outreach Judaism. I, I, I've just seen online that it's managed by the Eight Shime Indonesia Foundation. I mean, as I understand it, you were in the United States, you then moved to Indonesia, uh, and now you are residing in, in Jerusalem, in Israel. Um, what would you say uh, are indeed some of the aims and the objectives of outreach Judaism, and what would distinguish it from, for example, um, you know, other organizations um, um, within within Jewish society um, that that don't focus on the kind of work that you focus, which is hardcore, a biblically based exegesis, which puts yourself more often than not against the kind of conventional wisdom that, or if I could call it conventional, unconventional uh, polemics that are brought up by missionaries, polemicists, and indeed Christian apologists. Because your, your organization is unique. I don't think there's any other Jewish organization in the world that dedicates itself to the work that you do that has the specific niche in dealing with missionary onslaught in different yeah. parts of the world. So the Jewish people take the declaration, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is a God, the Lord is one. There is one God and there is no other. And as it turns out, this sacred creed that there is one God and no other is also deeply important to the Muslim. La ilaha illallah. Every Jew and Muslim understands how precious our faith is in the one true God. As it also turns out, Muslims and Jews find themselves in the same room because we're under attack by Christian missionaries. I'm very aware, and I've been doing this work for 40 years, where fundamentalist Christians are targeting Jewish people for conversion. It's so interesting, isn't it? You know, monotheistic religions are not noted for being eclectic. Neither Judaism nor Islam, we're not eclectic. I mean, if there's one God and no other, it doesn't leave room for much else, as there shouldn't be. And yet, Jews see in Islam a, a monotheism that we find very attractive, and Muslims have a high respect for Judaism, and Islam rightfully does not respect most religions because the religion because there's an ideal of one God. The church claims that they are um, teaching a, a monotheism, but they're not. They claim that they believe in one God, but they are not. They claim that their teachings are directly the teachings of Abraham, but it is not. Rather, the teachings of the church is idolatry. In Judaism, it's the most vulgar form of idolatry, a partnership. A partnership is a, in Arabic, it's called a shirk. A partnership is the, is the most grotesque form of idolatry because Christians believe in 
the God created the heavens and the earth. They believe in the Father of us all. They believe in the true God. But in addition to the true God, they also believe in a partner, in a a shutif in Hebrew, it's the same word. It means a partner with someone else. It's imagine a marriage where a, where, where a woman not only has a husband, but she has a boyfriend on the side. That is much more, that's much more horrible than a single woman. It's idolatry of every form is um, against the will of God. But the worst iteration of this is the Christian one because the Christian one is the shirk. The Christian one says, because Christians really believe in the true God. And therefore, the, the work of outreach Judaism, my work is devoted all these years to responding directly to the claims, the arguments made by Christian missionaries. And it's not just about um, monotheism, but the result of monotheism or the injured monotheism, the notion of vicarious atonement. Because the moment Christianity advances the notion of a doctrine of a trinity, a late Christian invention, the moment the monotheism of the Abrahamic monotheism is injured, is impure, so then everything else falls apart because then God can't forgive you through your repentance, through his mercy. He needs something else. So people should realize these are all interconnected, and that's what we do. We respond to that. I'll ask you one thing. Um, there, there is a, a thought, a trend um, within certain scholarly discourses like Benjamin Sommer in his book, Bodies of God, uh, God which kind of give the indication that the Jewish uh, concept of faith was uh, of, of God was henotheistic. Would would that be an accurate uh, distinction, or, um, uh, as opposed to monotheism, henotheism, or for that matter, you know, which something which is now being lapped onto by Christian missionaries that you you had this dualistic notion of not a a a a a, a single deity, but just like you've got the triune concept. You've got, for example, two concepts within Judaism. Can you possibly address it? Because a lot of missionaries use that as a means to justify the Trinity from the Old Testament. Can you address these two aspects and just put it to bed once and for all? Yeah, there are two kinds of people who peddle in this foolishness. Yeah. One of them is the atheist, the person who sure. is does, does not believe in God. And the other is the Christian. And each of them sort of find themselves in bed together um, on this issue. So when, mm -hmm. when, the, when the Jewish Bible says that Anochi El, and there is no other God, and there's nothing like me, Isaiah 46, verse 9, Atem Edai Numashem, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I've chosen, so you should know, believe, and understand that I am him, and besides me, there was no God formed before me and none after me. I I am the Lord, and besides me, there's no Savior. Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11. Mm. That is so clear. But if you're an atheist or a Christian, you have a big problem. The big problem is the following. The problem is that if you don't believe in God, you then have to believe that Judaism was at some point invented, that the, the Abrahamic faith 
had to have been invented at some point, and it was born out of a, a polytheistic system. You see, the, there are two worldviews that are going on here. The worldview that, that there is no God, that the world is completely materialistic, that means that the belief in the Abrahamic faith was invented at some point by people, not by God. It's a human iteration, which means it had to develop over time. And how would it develop from an henotheism? And for you, the viewer, henotheism is a Greek word, which strangely means heno, one God, but it really means mm. a major God with minor deities. The, the Hebrew Bible attacks this constantly. So if you s submit that there is no God, then you have to say that Judaism is an invented religion and evolved over time. Nothing could be further from the truth. And what these people who peddle in this idea have to do is exactly what Christians do to find the doctrine of the Trinity in the Christian Bible. <laughs> what they have to do is scour the text to find anything that could be remotely resemble a Trinity, like the Great Commission of Matthew 28, where there's nothing there about that they're all gods or the nature between them. They have to interpolate fake verses like in 1 John 5, 7, and 8. Doesn't exist, added in very, very late. They have to play games with the text, find some text that could be construed uh, as a point to a henotheism or a bianity, and then ignore all the obvious facts, all the plain text in the Bible, I, I want to share this with you. The nature yeah, sure. of a cult, the nature of a cult always is. If you want to know how a false teaching always works this way, you have passages in Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible. By the way, you have the same thing in the Quran, where you have very clear texts. They're very clear. It's very obvious what the author is conveying. It's very clear what what's you're reading. Now, there are other texts in holy books that are not very clear. They require other texts to explain them. They're nebulous. They're in the dark. The rule of hermeneutics always is that you take the clear text and you use as, as those clear texts as a light to interpret texts that are not clear. The sign of a cult, the way you could sniff it out, the red flag is when people are using these awkward passages that really do require tafsir, they require a commentary to put it together, you, they use those texts to reinterpret the clearest texts. So the atheist has to explain Judaism, which means the faith of Abraham, the faith of Noah, the, the faith of Adam, all of them are prophets in Judaism as well as Islam. In fact, um, not only that, but of course, Isaac, Jacob, you can't be a Muslim if you don't believe those individuals are among the greatest people that ever lived, the prophets of blessed memory. So the atheist has that incentive. And then the Christian okay. has a bigger problem because the Christian has to explain how is there a, a multiple person in a Godhead? It means how do you in, come up with that? So therefore, what they have to do is go... It was always there. And again, they scour the text looking for any passage that possibly could be construed to show that there's another power besides God. Like, for example, angels. An angel yeah. in Hebrew is a malach, a messenger. A messenger is not the one who sent him. So therefore, 
messengers, meaning angels, in in the in Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible, are spoken of in a way that's very very special. But they're not God. And then you say, oh, like the like the agent. I, I, I'm going I'm going to come into that, Rabbi. But the question I want to ask then is that um, when you look at, for example, somebody like Paul, if he existed, that is. This is someone that was Jewish, purportedly Jewish, Saul of Tarsus. What would then be the psychology behind the motivation? I mean, suddenly to move from what we would conventionally describe as Orthodox Judaism to something totally diametrically opposed um, to, 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 to what we then have in the conventional uh, writings of Paul, which theologically is totally different and distinguishable from what is there in the Old Testament. What was the psychology moving? There, there must have been, I mean, we, we can talk of, of the Roman influence, we can talk of of, of uh, paganism, the cult of Sol Invictus and so on, but there must have been a psychology at play there. Or alternatively, is this, is this after the event, people writing about, uh, you know, what transpired and then superimposing it as the words of Paul or writings of Paul when in fact these were external redactors, you know, like the book of Hebrews traditionally attributed to Paul, but now we know it's written by somebody else. Could that have been the reason? Because I find it strange something, just this sudden transition. Right. So with Paul, our task is rather easy because the, the rest of the Christian Bible, the Gospels, we have no clue who wrote them. They're written anonymously. And the ascriptions given to them are from the second century. They're completely anonymous. We have no yeah. idea. It surely wasn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Forget that. But when it comes to Paul, although there are 13 letters that claim to have been written by him in the Christian canon, seven of them are without question written by Paul. And I have a feeling that Ephesians and Colossians were as well. The point is, we actually have the writings of this individual, so we know a lot about him. His, what interested Paul was Paul. <laughs> Paul mm. sought to advance himself. And one of the things that we find very striking is, in Paul's letters, it is clear that he couldn't get along with anyone. And we find that in the book of Acts, which is a book largely devoted to Paul. It means we don't have to guess at this. Paul was very interested in Paul. Paul loved Paul very much. His claim to be a Pharisee was a complete lie, but to be a Pharisee, which means an Orthodox Jew, the term Pharisee is an anachronism. It just means it's the same thing as an Orthodox Jew. That's the gold standard. That, that's the traditional Jew, which even in the Christian Bible is said to be sitting in the throne of Moses, uh, that whatever they teach you is directly from God. So the claim to be a Pharisee meant that you held all the teachings of the prophets, the written and oral tradition. That means you were the standard. And Paul makes a very big deal in Galatians and Philippians, in Galatians 1 and 2 and Philippians 3, to say that, ah, I'm the Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he also takes the opportunity to mock other fellow Christians. People don't realize this, but Paul is almost exclusively attacking fellow Christians, not Jews like me. He is yeah. attacking, in the book of Acts, the author who wants to put everyone on the same page, he attacks Luke. Barnabas. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the author of Acts is Luke. He's a t <laughs> the author of Acts is yeah. whoever wrote Luke is the author of yeah. Acts. 
We don't of know course. who wrote Luke, but we don't know. It's, Definitely. it's volume two of the book of Luke, right? So in Acts itself, Barnabas, who was the very person who introduces Paul mm. to the Jerusalem church, they ha- Paul won't talk to him anymore. They have a huge fight. Paul won't talk to, to Mark, to John Mark. He won't travel with him. Now, this is what's called a criteria of embarrassment. How likely is it that these stories would have been made up? Very unlikely. Why? They're highly embarrassing to the church. So we even have the most, the friendliest text to Paul, Acts. The whole, the book of Acts was written for a number of reasons, but primarily is to show that Paul was the leader of the church and on the same page as the Jerusalem church. It's to raise up Paul. He's the star of the book of Acts. And Acts is confessing this. In Paul's letters, each and every one of his letters, Paul is writing to demonstrate why fellow Christians are wrong. So he can't get along with anyone. He accuses Peter in Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 in Antioch of being a complete hypocrite. He refers to the other disciples being the so-called pillars of the church and mocks them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So Paul is questioning the salvation of the other disciples and mocking them. Why? Because this is what drives Paul. Look, we all know people like this in our personal lives. I think we encounter people who just can't get along with other people. I think also that explains why Paul had companions that were women why did he travel with women a lot? He seemed to have gotten along with women. And mm-hmm. I, I think part of that is because in the ancient world, uh, it was highly unlikely that women were going to confront or challenge Paul. He would get along with them because they would be very submissive. Whereas the fellows of each of other Christians, he would accuse them of, of teaching a false gospel. This is This is what Paul was very much about. Paul was never a Pharisee. But like people around the world, they're familiar with the Jewish teachings today as well as the ancient world. And therefore, he was aware of the Hebrew Bible. He was was very Hellenistic and dualistic. Dualistic means his very dualistic. The, 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 The platonic ideas that there is a good God, but there are dark forces, and this world is associated with a darker God, one who's, the the material world is not a a good thing. It's the kind of um, belief that fueled uh, Manichaeism, which Augustine belonged to, Gnosticism, that kind of idea that this world was built, created by a wretched God, the God of the Jews, uh, Marcy and I, they all had the same idea, and I, I for the viewers, know this. The way you could smell out dualism is when people call for celibacy and consider celibacy yeah. a virtue. That's mm-hmm. all these dualistic religions considered celibacy to be a virtue. To Jews and Muslims, yeah. celibacy is disgusting. God mm-hmm. gave us a blessing to be a partner in creation, and we can raise that high relationship to God Celibacy to a Jew is considered stupid. Not only that, God commands men to be fruitful and to multiply. So I just want to give you, the viewer, the way to sniff it out. And in fact, Paul does state in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, look, he says, look, husbands and wives, you know, take care of each other. Then he says, look, virgins, it's best to be like me. 
and not <clears> get married. But but it's better to be married than to burn. Could you imagine that? If you it's better to be married than to burn. Like that's an orthodox <laughs> view. That's very that's sick. It really is. It's absolutely <laughs> sick. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt you. But would this? Would this? I mean, to to extend the argument further, would it be this kind of Hellenistic background to Paul that yes. would have also influenced yes. the idea um, of, for example, his 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 concept of atonement? Because I mean, the idea of atonement, the idea of um, a human sacrifice, um, uh, the the idea of of, of an incarnation, um, and then of course that bloodletting leading. To the salvation once you accept that of humanity, there's no there's no theological precedent for that in the Old Testament. So, so where would that idea come from? I mean, one could make the argument that in pagan systems and ideologies, you had that. I you you probably had the idea of somebody dying to appease the gods or being sacrificed. But in in the unique sense as presented by Paul, where would that idea have come from? Particularly. The, the the concept of atonement that that manifests large in his in his writings. Paul in, invented nothing. Christianity invented nothing. They barred, plagiarized, and misappropriated everything. They simply took ideas that were very well known in the Persian world, very well known even among Aztecs and human sacrifice. The idea that you take. Virgins sacrifice them. Why virgins and babies? But would, would there be? But, but, but just quickly, Rabbi, because I, I don't I don't want to interrupt sure. you and break your thought. You mentioned the Aztecs back then. You're looking at the first century. I mean, that 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 degree of contact never existed back then. I mean, unless we right. argue the point. these ideas. Look, let, let, forget. Let's go to another. But it doesn't make a difference where you go. The idea mm. that the gods had to be appeased. This was the key point in the pagan world. Mm. The gods needed something. The relationship between man and God was transactional. Remember, once you don't have a pure monotheism, that means that God has needs. And you have needs, and there's a transaction. If it's a pure monotheism, a pure Tawhid, so God is all-powerful. There is nothing that God lacks that we, as a Jew or a Muslim, could possibly provide. Nothing. And therefore, God must be all-loving because he doesn't need any of this. He's only created the world for uh, only because of his love and his mercy. But if if that monotheism is disturbed, that means mm. there has to be a transaction. And therefore, God needs something. And who does he need? You notice that in all the religions where the innocent dies, it's always, of course, the virgin. You, you can go to Papua. I lived in Indonesia yeah served as rabbi for five years. I was in the island of Papua, geographically the largest island in Indonesia. It's an island that's shared by two countries. And to this day, you have the, you have literally cannibalism going on right now as we speak. And this is the Eucharist. The idea that you could sacrifice innocent children, babies, in order to, bring, in order to satisfy the gods and this way you can have the harvest that you want, drinking the blood, eating the body of 
in Papa of others is always ritual. That idea is that if you ate the body, drank the blood of somebody else, you then took on his powers. You were infused with these powers. And that's why, mm. my friends, the Eucharist is not limited to the Gospels. People think it is. But it's not only found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You find it in the letters of Paul. You find it in 1 Corinthians 11. That's 1 Corinthians is no doubt from the hand of Paul. So Paul was simply taking the ideas that he was very well aware of, not just in the Levant, but far beyond, and then incorporating yeah. it. And that's what Christianity is. It's a, a mishmash of pa thoroughly pagan ideas. That's why, my friends, on the Day of Judgment, you don't want to be anywhere near Paul. If I, I'll, I'll just say one other thing. The Jew, Judaism, Jews can't stand Paul. We really can't stand him. In an interesting way, I've never said this on air, but in an interesting way, Muslims probably hate him even more, and as they should, smartly, wisely, because Muslims believe that Jesus was not just a prophet, but a rasul, the highest form. And to the Muslim, Paul is so offensive, and understandably so, because he ruined that too. That means he took, he took something special, and he destroyed it. So therefore, Jews and Muslims both detest the teachings of Paul. Paul's ideas were thoroughly pagan, very familiar to the world around him, whether it was ideas that were imported from North Africa, from Egypt, where the Trinity, even the word was invented. The doctrine was exported from Alexandria, from the East, from the Far East. These ideas are all brought together. The dualism that Paul used, and he just mm. conflates it and distorts the Jewish scriptures in order to make it appear Christological. So, 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 Rabbi, then on that point, I mean, there's, there's like a kind of a cannibalistic element to the discussion on the Eucharist. Um, this takes me to the next issue, and I just want to wrap up that discussion before we move on, is then the, the, the idea specifically, not just any sacrifice, but the sacrifice specifically of an incarnation. Now, right. You'd have the idea that a missionary would put this out to you about the existing theophanies in the Old Testament, or, for example, um, you know, when you had the appearance of the angel of the Lord. So there would be nothing unique in the idea of a of an incarnation because this is, you know, you can have slight manifestations in the Old Testament. This is a this is a kind of usual uh, canard that is thrown out before people. What 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 would his background? What would be again? Would the what would the um, theological precedent be to Paul's idea of an incarnation? Because a Unitarian, like someone like Anthony Buzzard, would argue that look, Paul was Unitarian, but the traditional Orthodox Christianity would state that he indeed uh, postulated the idea of God coming down to earth as a man, and then of course dying for the sins of humanity. Where does the aspect of the incarnation emanate from? Well, so first of all, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. So let's start here. First of all, the Christian sure. Bible attacks the idea that Jesus was an angel. And that's found in the first yeah. chapter of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, 6, 7, it attacks the idea that Jesus could possibly be an angel. And in fact, the notion that Jesus was the angel of the Lord, God has malachim, has many angels, um, was basically invented by and he didn't really invent it because he but he made it popular was the second century church father justin justin really advanced this and there's a problem that church fathers had that they had to contend with and that is 
why isn't Jesus, if he is the son of God in some way, divine, die, that this is part of God's plan, that God would send his son and die for our sins, like, why isn't this found in the Hebrew Bible? The Jewish scriptures is enormous. I don't people realize this. It's nearly four times the size of the Christian Bible. It's just an enormous, like, why isn't there any mention of this? Did God just forget to point this out? Like, in a church service, you'll hear Jesus, like, from beginning, the moment you walk in to the moment you walk out, is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the question is, mm. well, why don't we find this in the Hebrew Bible? Remember, Christians believe that the Hebrew Bible is the word of God. Like, why yes. doesn't it say, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So anyone, like, why don't we have, you know, John 3, 16, something even yes. remotely resembling that Hebrew Bible. This was, this is a conundrum of the church. This bothers the Christian doctors. And therefore what they have to do again is scour the text, hoping to find anything that can be construed that here's a, a theophany. Now there is yeah. now there now there is a point that you, the viewer, needs to know, and that is Tanakh uses certain conventions that we don't use today. Tanakh will, for example, when somebody represents God and is speaking in the name of God, whether it is, for instance, um, Moses, a blessed memory, uh, in. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, he is called God. God says, I will make you a God to Pharaoh. Um, angels could be called God. Be very careful with this. That means we don't talk this way. Jews don't talk. Nobody talks this way. But in Tanakh, when it's very clear, judges in Exodus 21 and 22, it's talking about judges, torts. You're an attorney, right? You, you go to the judge. The judge is appointed. It's these are people who are appointed by Moses of blessed memory. So they're called God, not that they're God, but because they represent God, they're called God. Well, what do you think Christians and other pagans are going to do with this? They're going to be, they're going to exploit this, this chasm in conventional speech because the Hebrew Bible would refer to anyone who is speaking in the name of God as this is God speaking, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz. It's very famous because Christians use that chapter. But what the point is that Isaiah is speaking, but it says God spoke because when a mm. prophet spoke, it's God. God is just using that prophet. Nothing comes to the imagination of the sure. prophet. And therefore, this chasm, this different type of speech, this different type of convention is exploited by pagans, exploited by Christian missionaries. If you're familiar with the text, you're on to it immediately. If you're not, this could be very confusing to you, no doubt. Sure. I, I want to move on to the other aspect then, and then we're going to move on to the Old Testament. Then the one thing which I want you to address is that um, moving aside, moving, leaving Paul aside, Going now to the canonical Gospels, the, the, the traditional authors of the canonical Gospels, um, Matthew, the text collector, Mark was apparently Peter's attendant, Luke, the attendant of Paul, John, the son of Zebedee. Um, it, it seems that at least in, 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 in the 20th century, the vast majority of mainstream New Testament scholars in fact, doubt that these are, in fact, the, the traditional authors. In fact, um, if, if, if you look at uh, some of the 
the complex reasons, the methodology that these scholars use to reach a lot of these well-supported conclusions about critical issues, looking at authorial traditions. Uh, I mean, I, had, I have in my library the Oxford Annotated Bible, which is a compilation of multiple scholars. And, and in fact, it, 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 it summarizes the dominant scholarly trends for the last 150 years that essentially state that these writers never engage in historical analysis uh, they were not eyewitnesses. They were not contemporary accounts of Jesus' life and teachings. They were much later. However, the problem is, and 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 I, and I want I, I, what I find bizarre. And maybe you could probably uh, address us. Is that um, if you look at the general public, the general public, the lay person, the person who goes to your Bible bookstore or your fancy, uh, well, in the South African context, we've got a lot of fancy uh, evangelical bookstores. Um, those individuals, they're not familiar with scholarly resources. Um, they, for example, come across material like The Case for Christ <laughs> by Lee Strobel. I don't know. I, I believe Lee Strobel interviewed you some years back. Uh, he did. I in debated, your TV deb- I debated uh, William Lane Craig. 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 Right. I, I saw Craig. that I saw that clip some years back. In fact, I saw it when I was debating Craig in 2010. But if you look at books like The Case for Christ, for example, um, and, and these are targeted at lay audiences, the reality of the situation is that the populist discourse is very far removed and synchronistically apart, in fact, diametrically opposed to the scholarly analysis. So you've got the traditional scholarly anal- analysis that has totally demolished the idea of who these writers were, the authorship, the authorial traditions, and so on and so forth. It's totally demolished. And this is mainstream Christian scholarship, yet there is a disconnect between what the populist um, discourses. And in fact, of course, the missionary position tends to rely by and large on that populist um, um, material that is out there. Explain to me, how is it that that disconnect still exists 150 years later, you know, after high criticism? I mean, we're looking at 2022, and still you have this kind of idea, you know, in your average church by your average Christian. They believe Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke, and John wrote John. Why does that disconnect exist? You know, what's interesting is the vast majority of missionaries, both in South Africa, in Jerusalem, in New York, and London, are Protestant Christians rather than Roman Catholic. It's not that there are no Catholic or Orthodox missionaries, but the people who are really attacking Judaism and Islam are Protestants, evangelical Christians. Uh, There's a reason I'm raising this. The reason is that these Protestants claim that they don't believe in any tradition of the church. They claim a number of solas, meaning only, including sola scriptura, only what the Bible says. So the Catholic could say, look, we have a tradition of Matthew wrote Matthew, but the Protestant has a monumental problem because the person who ascribes Matthew to Matthew, Luke, to the companion of Paul, John to being the disciple, to John the son of Zebedee, uh, Mark, a, a, a someone who was basically a secretary for, for Peter. That's all Roman Catholic. That, that yeah. comes from Irenaeus. That means that's a Catholic belief. There's nothing in the text. This is, so we're not like arguing that the New Testament is wrong here, there is nothing in the Christian canon that Protestants, that evangelical Christians believe in that suggests that Matthew wrote Matthew. For example, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, um, Mm. it says, as Jesus 
passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Again, this is Matthew. Matthew's writing this, we're told. Jesus passed by and saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, it doesn't say he said to me, he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Hello, that means the author is not even claiming to be a Matthew. The author is is not lying. Now, I believe there are authors in the Christian Bible that did lie about their identity. I don't believe the pastoral epistles were written by Paul. I'm certain that those were not. Those are uh, books written in, uh, as though they're written by Paul. They're pseudepigrapha. These are not. These are anonymously written. And it was church. We don't have earlier church. We don't have Justin referring to Matthew as Matthew and Luke and John. None of that stuff is going on in the early first century. Zero, zero. So if Irenaeus, who was Irenaeus? Irenaeus was a church father who was actually from modern-day Turkey, from Asia Minor, but he was the Bishop of Lyon. In, there was no France at the time, but he was a very influential, very smart guy. He's the one who comes up with this, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this is utterly Catholic, and it's non-biblical. It means there's no source in the Christian Bible. See, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not attacking the Christian Bible. I'm saying, based on your own Bible, there's nothing there that would point to this. But Christians need to point to these texts and say that these were written by the very apostles, the followers of Jesus. And if so, well, these these names will be convenient. So I ask the Protestant, what is your source for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? If you, if the Catholic Church, if the traditions of the Catholic Church that you detest, means you Protestants believe that the Catholic Church is has deviated from the true teachings of Jesus. I'm talking to you, the viewer who is a Christian. <laughs> you believe that the that you don't believe in the Pope. You don't believe that the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church are have any authority at all. In fact, you believe that the Catholic Church has deviated completely from the true teachings of Christianity, and it's sola scriptura, the Bible alone. I turn to you, the Christian, ask, what is your source for this? Now, Christians will invent this idea. The manuscripts don't say Matthew wrote these books. Mm. doesn't say John wrote these books. And there's nothing in the book that would remotely suggest any of this. And don't bring up Papias. I want to just get that out because I'll, I'll hear it from... Yeah, I think that's an important point. They always yeah, bring up Papias. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I got to yeah. do that or I was going to bring up Papias and we won't hear the end of Papias. So Papias was a church father who lived in, let's say, the early second century. He, we, so here's the first thing. We have nothing that Papias wrote. Nothing survives. Zero. Nothing. So when someone tells you that Papias said, we don't have anything that Papias wrote. We have later church fathers who years, I'm talking a long time later, say that Papias said that Matthew wrote a logi, which are simply a Greek word which means sayings of Jesus. There's nothing in there that, that um, there's nothing in that the gospel, is, the gospel of Matthew is much more than sayings. And Papias was, I'm gonna, I don't usually say this on air, but by Christian standards, Papias was considered an idiot. I'm not kidding. Eusebius, yeah. who is really orthodox, 
He's mm. the historian of the church, called him a, a, a good an earhead because he said ridiculous things about Judas Iscariot. I think about the story of Judas, the, the head exploding. Was that, was oh, that his paper, head exploding, that? his genitals exploding. The no, genitals explode and his uh, head just, became you know, twice the size. Well, ridiculous uh, comments that ridiculous. I saw there, as, you know, re, as recounted by like, Eusebius. You know, Protestants, I want to say this, I, I, please don't take it personally, but Protestants will use Papias when it's convenient and then throw him away because he's yeah. he is he's utterly embarrassing. Um, and Matthew wasn't written in Hebrew. Forget Matthew was written in Greek. How do you know? We really know that it was written in Greek. Well, how could you be sure, Rabbi? Well, because there are devices, literary devices in the book of Matthew. I'm giving you an example. There are sure. so many literary devices in the book of Matthew that only work in Greek and do not work if you translate them. Just like you can have literary devices in Arabic where you have words that rhyme or words that begin with the same consonant. So it sort of falls off the lips easier or texts which are in an alphabetical order. So in as an example, in Matthew um, chapter 5, you have the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes... Yeah employ an alliteration that only works in Greek. It doesn't even work in Hebrew. moment you put it in Hebrew, it all collapses because the these linguistic devices fall apart. So it wasn't written in Hebrew. So this is all silliness. This is all nonsense. But Christians are desperate to come up with, we need an authority to show that we can trust in the Christian Bible instead of letting the text speak for itself. So, 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 so in summary then, uh, Rabbi, would I then be correct that in the Protestant world amongst missionaries today, and a lot of them are in fact apologists, a lot of them are engaged in the discourse of polemics, um, that they would now not necessarily hold on to the traditional count on the authorial attributions. And over and above that, even when it comes to, for example, biblical inerrancy, I mean, you've got someone like um, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, you've got uh, Michael Lycona, uh, they, 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 they make strong arguments for the existence of God, for the resurrection, but no longer defend the aspect of inerrancy. Uh, particularly of the New Testament. Do you see a shift then that they are now moving slowly and slowly because the evidence amongst Christian scholars is so overwhelming that it doesn't make sense for an apologist that is a missionary to defend the idea of biblical inerrancy, to defend the idea of the traditional authorial attributions, particularly from the Protestant perspective? Would you see that as happening? I don't see it as a trend frankly. And that's why you're able to name off these people. <laughs> you actually know them by name. Yeah. So that means if you take people who I think like Raymond Brown, who yeah. is no longer alive. Was a Roman Catholic. He, Brown was a Roman a Ro Catholic. Roman, yeah. He was a genius. He was, yes. in my view, the greatest um, New Testament scholar. New Testament of scholar. Yeah. Of the second half of the of the 20th century he was he was really a genius but he totally recognized he didn't believe any of this stuff that matthew wrote matthew mark wrote mark and all that stuff mm. he dismisses completely but among evangelicals the tendency is that once anything is questioned the whole thing really does collapse i i don't know mike personally but i think he's trying to be honest in his yeah. saying, look, the the infancy narratives that are only found in Matthew and Luke are utterly incomparable. There isn't even a bad answer to explaining them. 
we can go into it or not, but just for right now, just know this is not like the contradictions in how many women there were at the tomb. Those are contradictions. Those are, but you can come up with you can come up with a bad answer. You could, with yeah. the infancy narratives, you can't. You know the the idea of the zombie apocalypse found in Matthew. Matthew twenty seven fifty one. He is denied that. He 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 says it's a from what when I had a conversation with him years back and and we did a debate I think twenty eleven. He said something along the line that it's a kind of a metaphorical allusion to the end times, right. to the right. the day of judgment, which is but that's where he, he was attacked by that. He was attacked right. by he was that. Very much attacked by it because the yeah. Christian. This is this is the sore point for them. They know the infancy now. Anybody with eyes, all you have to do is look at Matthew and Luke and ask, where is Mary and Joseph from? Well, Luke, they are originally from Nazareth, briefly went to Bethlehem for some strange reason of a census that we know didn't occur, and then go right back to to Nazareth with a brief stopover in Jerusalem. Matthew has this, the family start in Bethlehem and go to Egypt. I mean, it's a yeah. whole different, whole different story. I mean, I mean, Matthew, recon- and you can't reconcile it. You can't reconcile. No, those can't be. Re- when was Jesus even born? So according to Luke, according to Luke, Jesus was born long after Herod the Great died. Yeah. As far as Matthew is concerned, Jesus' life and Herod the Great's life overlap by about two years. I mean, two years, Jesus, it's almost the same time, yeah. Well, will you hear the term 6 BCE as a ter- as a date uh, assigned for Jesus' birth? That's a Matthew assignment. If According to Luke's gospel, Jesus was born around 6 CE. So, um, mm. the, I mean, these, these are, these are, the reasons are, Herod the Greatest dies in 4 BCE. Herod Archelaus, his son, a, a lunatic, takes over. Herod Archelaus gets himself in so much trouble that ultimately the governor of Sirius has to step in and Curanus uh, and and um, and Herod Archelaus is removed. Matthew, I, they can't. This can't be resolved. They confuse. I think they confuse the timelines. They confuse the timelines. They don't know the timeline. You know, the yeah. truth is, or the authors don't know the timelines. I think the authors much later didn't know the timelines, so they couldn't make the um, the, well, the assessment in so terms. Really, of these views. here, let me just. I want to tease this out with you. So. People didn't know the timelines because let's say we use the term, we're now in the year 2022. So actually that chronology was invented in the sixth century by, by a, a monk named Danasius Exiguus. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So that's a sixth century idea. So the dating system that we now we're all stuck with, but the key is that you really don't need the timeline, meaning you don't need to know days. You just need to know that Herod the Great dies, and his son is made then sort of um, the, let's call him a governor over Judea, okay? Mm. Archelaus. I mean, that's just real simple. Archelaus then is removed because of a horrible event that occurred in the year 6 on Passover, where Jews were slaughtered, and he was too crazy even for the Romans. That's saying a lot. So the governor of Syria is then called and go, come on in and take over the show, that we know that is, and and he appears in the book of Luke, and Archelaus, you're out because you're a nut job. All right, therefore they can't be the same. It's so even if you don't know days, you don't need to know days. You just need to know mm. just who was king. So the problem is that Christians know, evangelical Christians know very little about their religion. Pro- Catholics know they don't know. Orthodox Christians yeah. know that they don't study the Bible. The danger is the evangelicals 
think they know, but they really have no idea. So, so then the question is, why then do the apologists today, who are in fact, they view themselves as missionary, go against the majority scholarly consensus um, and attempt to defend the indefensible? I mean, as you pointed out, these, oh, these no can't be reconciled. No, because you have no choice. You have to hang on. Yeah, yeah, but the, the, the fact that scholars, it, it's so in the open. I mean, they, they always, you know, in, uh, I've done a few debates in all of them. They always cite these scholars, but the conclusions that they reach are totally different from the conclusions that the scholars reach. For example, they would cite Bruce Metzger to prove the multiplicity of New Testament manuscripts, but they, 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 they attempt to make a different uh, they come to a different conclusion to what Metzger did in his book, the the history of the, the text and the transmission of the New Testament. You know the uh, the reliability and so on of the right. the manuscript. So I see that again. This disconnect is this, and um, it appears to me that it's 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 something that is ideologically based. So the the idea is to win the person to to convert the person to this brand uh, of religion that you would engage in a degree of dishonest exegesis and even be dishonest with the historical accounts in order to make a theological point or a theological argument and in fact win the person over to say you are right i mean because a lot of these people are articulate i mean they they are good in their particular um uh, in, in in articulating their, their their specific positions you listen to some of them and um it's it's unfortunate that they do this so dishonestly and the average lay person be he jew be he muslim they can get easily caught up in this uh, particular polemic that is out there. You have to, in a sense, respect, and I use those words in quotation marks, Christianity. I mean, it's the largest world religion, and there's True. a reason for it. it. The reason that Christianity is very successful is not because of texts, polemics. It's because of a, a self-esteem that's been shattered. The belief that man is sinful, man is dirty, this is, by the way, straight Manichaeus dualist. And, and people struggle with self-esteem. I mean, if you think about why people have problems in their lives, make poor personal decisions in their lives, who they marry, and then wonder later, how did I ever marry this person? Because you really, your self-esteem was shattered. But Jesus, he loves you. He's God's son. You'll never be like him. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself. The big mistake that I think people make is that they, they believe that Christians adopt Christianity because of cognitive logical reasons. They don't. People are terrified of dying. And Christianity is, is your, your guarantee that you're going to have eternal life. It's transactional. Number two is you can never make it to heaven on your own. Why? Because you're a sinner. See, so what it does is it affirms that everything you think about yourself, who is your worst judge? The person you see in the mirror. I'm talking about the people who are really struggling in life. People look in the mirror, they don't see something beautiful. They don't see something attractive. So the idea that although the, the terrestrial world is full of brokenness, and that's the nature of dualism, but there's one man who came... And he was really divine in the terrestrial world. And he died for you. He did for you what you can never do for yourself. This is really what drives Christians, not the infancy narrative, not the passion narratives. If people don't know what I'm saying now, 
you won't be able to talk to a Christian. It won't, nothing will make it. Because you go like, well, why do Christians hang on to this? The reason is that, are you telling me that I'm praying to nobody? I can't, there's nothing I can do to earn my own salvation. Conversely, in Judaism, we no Jew would ever say the words, I'm sure I'm going to heaven. We don't talk that way. We do know that God is full of mercy. And just like when we get on a plane, we hope that the plane lands safely. We know that God is merciful, that he is the true lover. He's a Rachman, same word for God in Hebrew. Same in Arabic, yeah. And Arabic, the same exact word. That he is all mercy. That's his nature is mercy and loving. And therefore, we know that if we devote our lives, submit our lives to him, and are loyal to him, and adore him, and cherish him alone, and have no other, so we are we feel the confidence that God's mercy will bring us to an eternal life. But no Jew or Muslim ever walks around and arrogantly goes, I know him. We don't talk that way. And someone who would talk that way, we all have crazy people. I'm being honest with you. We all have on our jobs, you know, talk that way. They look like one of their idiots. In Christianity, ah, guaranteed, I'm assured. I'm going but that to guarantee, but that guarantee must have come up from somewhere. I mean, I don't see that theologically in in reading the New Testament, reading the even the writings of Paul. Well, I, probably you could make the argument about uh, from Paul, but that that kind of arrogance that you see where salvation there's no there's no other salvation under heaven other than the lord jesus christ you know as as many I mean, of these i am the uh, way it, the truth and the life the truth no and the life to the father no one comes, but, but i mean what one could make the argument that every prophet of god was a way the truth uh, the life because you know if, if i look at that passage he says and just to, to paraphrase he says in my father's house are many mansions Right. Uh, and I go to prepare a place for you. So they tell him, you know, Lord, we we know not where where you go. So how can how can you uh, how can we show the way or something along that line? Then he says, in response to the question, they were assuming a geographical uh, trajectory of sojourning. And then he says that look, he's not talking about traveling physically. He's talking about you know in the sense of following him. Um, that that's my understanding. So uh, me, but every prophet would apply. Point. Yeah, I know, but it, it, it actually proves the opposite. Let's take Yehoshua ben Nun, Joshua, great prophet of God, yes. right? And we have a whole book. It's a holy book, right? There is not a single new commandment. There's no innovation, nothing. If, if anybody ever introduced a new commandment or said that the commandment's obligated, he would have been thrown out the window. He couldn't possibly be a prophet. So therefore, there is there are no new commandments in Isaiah. There's no new commandment in Daniel. So therefore, there's nothing new. There's nothing innovative. Conversely, in the Christian Bible, we're told that in Mark 7, that what enters your mouth does not defile you. In the Christian Bible, we're told that the Son of God died as a ransom for your sins. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. That means this is completely a complete innovation. I need to tell you this very quickly. One of the most brilliant Christian theologians in the English-speaking world is very famous. You know him, N.T. Wright. He really is a bright guy. Yes. Right? yes. So N.T. Wright is a he's, a, he's really a smart guy. He came up with this theory, this idea that's very popular, and he concedes that the notion that the Messiah is supposed to die for sins is something that the Jews never knew about. This is completely alien to anything found in the Hebrew Bible. And, and that he's supposed to rise on the 
third day, which 1 Corinthians 15 says is in the scripture, but there is no scripture. It's a fake phantom scripture that doesn't exist. N.T. Wright, who's a bright guy, makes the following case, mind-blowing. His case, his argument is the following. He says, because the claims of Christianity were completely new, completely different, that no one was expecting anything remotely resembling this, therefore it had to be true, because why would someone invent it? It's mind-blowing. Because it's, mm. it becomes unfalsifiable. Mm. So mm. the the real thinker, the inner, now there's no doubt it's a, it's a it's cute, but it's grotesque. Because <laughs> that's the point. The idea that the Messiah will die for your sins. He admits there's nothing in the Hebrew Bible, nothing remotely resembling that. In fact, the Hebrew Bible attacks the idea that the innocent could die for the sins of the wicked. I mean, but, but in the Hebrew Bible, I don't I don't want to interrupt you just quickly because I don't want to break your train of thought. Sure. Um, there's there's multiple passages that. God does not allow his anointed ones in the Old Testament, the Messiah, the Moshiach, to be harmed. So, so this is basically, you know, the, the idea of a crucified Messiah is an oxymoron. It's, it's a contradiction yeah. in terms because, because that in itself would be a, a proof of his imposture. The fact that he right. would be killed, that in itself is proof that he's not, the truly anointed one can never be put to death. The fact I that he's killed. Yeah. You yeah. do not harm <laughs> that my anointed ones uh, will not be harmed, neither will the prophet. God is protecting them. The, the whole look, all someone has to do is, you know, read Isaiah, read Ezekiel, read Jeremiah. It's all there. But frankly, yeah. I'll tell you the truth that just Christians never read the book of Jeremiah once in their life. The way the only thing they know about Jeremiah is that they are given these cards, these pamphlets, and go, remember this verse there, remember that verse there, completely out of context, no clue, really, this, don't read it. You know, a Jewish child goes to yeshiva, goes to school, first we'll learn Hebrew immediately. Hebrew, yeah. we can, a, a religious Jew can read Hebrew the way a person can read a newspaper. It's just our first language, and it's an easy language, frankly. And number two is we're learning the whole book. We're not learning. We go through the entire cycle of reading it and understanding it. Christians don't have that, and Christians do not teach Hebrew to their children, even though they believe that Hebrew is a holy language. It doesn't even make sense, except mm -hmm. that this is an old tradition of church. The church knew that if its parishioners, if its parishioners were able to read Hebrew, that means they can read the Bible on their own without a translation. The whole You can close up the whole church. So, frankly, this is the difference about Knowing yeah. the original text in its language. I remember in Indonesia, I remember they would have among Muslims in Indonesia, young boys, young boys. I don't know if they were five, six, seven, eight years old, who would memorize the whole Quran. They would know it by heart and they'd be on television. It was very yeah. important, right? But not to the Christian. <laughs> and certainly not in the original language. That means in no, Arabic. No, definitely not. I think there, right. there's, no, there's no connectivity. There's nothing. Absolutely None at nothing. all. They're all dependent on yeah. translators. And they argue the biggest argument among Christians is frequently among evangelicals is which translation to use. The King James, the King James. Oh, nothing. Who cares a translation? Mm. A translation, translation is a human iteration. By definition, it's not the word of God. Now, translations are necessary for people who are not familiar with the original language, but that shouldn't be the default. People should be learning a holy book in its original language. What are you doing? Absolutely. I want to. I want to take something else up. Um, something that was um, 
<laughs> you, you, you probably, you, you probably heard of the of someone who was popular in the in the Muslim world, Ahmed Didat, uh, who was a firebrand back in the day. And uh, I mean, you know, the, the 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 context in which he emerged was the apartheid government, apartheid South Africa, where. Um, the apartheid government was underpinned by a specific Calvinistic variety of Christianity, which is very aggressive and in your face. But um, the, the one, the one, the one point that he was always raising, which is now you know certainly common, is that amongst missionaries they have this idea about the sonship of Jesus, the the uniqueness, the fact that he's in Greek the the monogenes. Uh, the unique or the only begotten, or as in Latin, unigenitus, which was then translated as as uh, as begotten. I, I want you to explain, you know, at least deconstruct this. When we talk about, for example, the Son of God or the idea of Son of God within um, within the Bible, within Jewish tradition itself, would I be correct? Because his argument was that, you know, in, in, in response to the Christian idea of the uniqueness of the sonship of Christ, he would say, well, look, God has got sons by the tons in the Bible. But the point being made is that he was making the argument that the son of God is someone who is a servant of God, someone who's a prophet of God, someone who is appointed to that position. And it's it's a unique designation for an individual that is there for a particular uh, prophetic um, uh, message that he was going to impart society. How then did the, the idea of the um, literalistic notion of the sonship of Christ creep into uh, the conventional wisdom of of Christianity as we have it today. I mean, you heard of the Nicene Council and so on, but my, my point is I understand that it, it systematically uh, was spelt out there. I'm talking about the evolution from the concept of sonship as is described in the Old Testament to the idea of something being literally of God, begetting of God. How did that, what what, what caused that to evolve and, and how did that, that, that whole pattern emerge? At a, the, at a later point in time. The New Testament was written in Greek. That's very significant because That's it correct. was the Greek mind, not the Jewish mind, that influenced the pen of the writers, of the authors of the Christian canon. So mm -hmm. in the Greek mind, there was a concept of the Son of God. And the Greeks were not yes. crazy. To the Greek, if you're a zebra and you have a son that's a zebra, so your son, <laughs> the baby zebra... It's also a zebra, but it's not equal to the sure. to the to the father zebra. I mean, it may I understand the pagan world. I get it. Like to them, there was the great god Zeus, great yes. god Jupiter, and then there were lower tier gods coming down to people who were just too great to just be mortal. And they were in fact divine mortals. Yeah. They, they really contend both. Well, this is really a platonic idea that people have a spark of divine, but the body is wretched. But there are certain people who are just literally um, like Hercules, like Pythagoras. These were literally um, you know, Romulus, the founder of Rome, and so on. So in the Greek mind, a son of God meant that you were literally divine. You were not equal to Zeus. And no one prayed to Zeus in the ancient world. There were state celebrations where people participated in a, in a uh, bring offerings to the great god Zeus, but Zeus was too busy running the planets and making ladies pregnant. He had no time for, for your problem that your wife is, can't get pregnant, you can't make a living. So that was the Greek idea of a son of God. A son of God in the Greek world meant that you were literally a divine being. 
In mm. Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible, we are all created in the image of God. We are all created from the clay of the earth and the divine spirit that God infused inside of us. And when we live up to that standard and we then carry out the will of God, we're called the Son of God. Bonim atem l'ashem l'kechem, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1. You are children of the Lord your God. That doesn't mean we're God in any way, heaven forbid, but rather we're carrying out the will of God and only a human being can do this with free will. So be careful. I say this to the viewer. We're all using the same language. Christians, Jews are using the same language, but we mean something really different. So, so, yeah. so, so quickly, uh, Rabbi, then the, the, the sonship, uh, or the idea of the Son of God. For example, in Psalms, uh, the book of Psalms, I will declare a decree unto thee, the Lord had said unto me, thou art my son. As I look at the translation, this day have I begotten thee. Right. Now, obviously, this is then superimposed to Christ. But what would begotten mean in that sense? You know, in a general sense, or, uh, you know, when, when, for example, um, Ephraim is the firstborn, or, um, you know, the, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, what, 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 what do we mean? So, yeah, as I understand, would it be servant? That, let's separate those two out. Okay, let's look so, at Psalms. Psalm let's look at chapter, Book of Psalms. Yeah, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, okay? Uh, this is a book, holy book, written by King David. King David comes from a family from the tribe of Judah. He is the yes. eighth of eight boys. He's the eighth child. And he's ultimately anointed by Samuel, a blessed memory, a great prophet, right? And and he says, he says that God spoke to him and he said, Bini Ata, you are my son, Ani Hayom Yeliditicha. And today I the word begotten, the word there means it fathered you. It means today I raised you up to be a special individual. So it means it's the same kind of word that would be give birth, which means that David at some point of his life was considered so great by God that he assigned him to be not just a prophet, but also to be a king, a melech, same word in Arabic, to be a king, and from him would come a very great dynasty. And incidentally, this demonstrates that this is not God. Why? Because if today... I have inaugurated you. So that means yesterday you weren't. Well, if you're mm. divine, then you always were. Christians in insist, argue, that Jesus was always divine from the eternal past. And they so, point to John's prologue. So, 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 so would I then be, so, so sorry, but would I then be correct in saying then that the idea of the sonship um, as or the idea of being a son of God as is defined in the Old Testament in different contexts was appropriated by Christians and by later writers was the, the same idea was appropriated but then applied in a pagan context in relation to Jesus. No, Would that no. Be you're giving too much credit to Christianity. Christianity started out as a Greek idea and then went to the text and tried to find something in the Hebrew Bible that could be construed to support what they already believe. 
you know, we all have that problem. Jews have this problem. Muslims have this problem. We have people yes. who are heretics. And what do they do? They come up with this idea that's totally not in the text because of their bias. In this case, the Greek bias. And then they search through the the Quran. They search through the Hadith. They search through the Sunnah of any text that could possibly be construed as already supporting what they want to believe and ignore everything else. That's what's yeah. happened here. This is not people who are just studying the Hebrew Bible and they concluded that King David was divine in any way. And by the way, if this is the case, that means King David was the son of God and he was divine as well. Like what? Christians don't even believe that. It's so silly. I mean, this is not saying there will be someone in the future who's going to be God's son. The King David is speaking about himself in the first person, that God he told him. So this has happened. It's in, in Hebrew, it's the perfect tense. It happened that God made him a king, inaugurated him. It means he wasn't before. And this is not about a future prophecy. This is David of blessed memory speaking about himself. And that's what the whole chapter is. So no, I, you, no Christians did not have a. They did not misapprehend the Hebrew Bible. They weren't studying and just misunderstood the text. No, they already a priori believed in all these pagan ideas, these Greek ideas. So it's a separate pagan ideology, not a misappropriation, right. or misapprehension. And, right. Pagan they ideology inter right, introduced. Right. And they criminally. I, I can't even say this about other religions with criminal intent, change the Jewish Bible in order to make it appear Christological. In fact, the mm. same chapter in verse 12, they literally, it says there, arm yourself with purity, and they mistranslate it in verse 12 as kiss the sun. They literally rape the text. You know, yeah. I lived in the... Well, well, well I, I want to go to that. That was my oh. next point where they <laughs> they make these passages, they make all yeah. these passages Christological or to kind of justify a, a Christian position. Now, I've got here before me, this is a very old edition, the the Holy Bible, the New Schofield Reference Edition, and I open up generally um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the first the very first chapter, 126, uh, and I look at the commentary that is given here. It's basically, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Now, <laughs> what I see, and what I see people like Michael Brown, in fact, I think I believe I had an interaction with him some time back on one of these podcasts that was being done by Jonathan McClatchy. And he was making the point, which is now made by a lot of his underlings, people like, I think, Anthony Rogers and so on, is that you've got the Elohim and you've got uh, Adonim, which are the, 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 the so-called, as I understand it, the Hebrew words for God that occur in the plural sense. Now, my question is that uh, if this literally meant a plurality of persons, Elohim, it would obviously be translated as gods, because in many passages in the Old Testament, as I understand, you can correct me, Rabbi, whether what Elohim is used in a general sense, it can be translated as gods. But the Jews being familiar with the idiom of their language, um, would I be correct that this is, in fact, indication of a plurality uh, it's it's not it's not a plurality of persons within the one God, but the kind of royal plural. That's that would be uh, my understanding. Me, would that me, be the plural? Let me plural majesty? Let me make this really really easy. First of all, in Arabic, you have the exact same thing. Yeah. Okay, could mean the true God or a false God. Like that's correct. Right. Okay. So that's exactly what it is. So this is really when we get complicated, everyone's going to get confused. Let's keep it really really simple. You can have Elah, an Arabic word, which could be about the true God or it could be about a false God, right? Allah 
is only mm. the true God. Now, the, in Islamic tradition, there are not one, but many, many names for God. Why are there nearly a hundred names for God? It's the same thing in Judaism. Like we say Shalom. Shalom is the name of God. Salam is one of the names of God. Rahman, names of God. What is this? Why does God have all these names? So in truth, it's not that God, like, like my name is Tovia. This person's name is is is, I don't know, Tracy or Harvey. That's not what God's names are names to identify his nature. This is very important in Judaism and Islam. It's the same thing. God is infinite. We're finite. We have to understand the nature of God and the nature of God is in his names. Now, Elohim cannot convey that there are many gods only because, or a multiple plurality because Moses, as an example, in Exodus 7, 1, after Moses said to God that I can't speak, I'm an oral sifasim, I have a, a, a speech impediment. Moses, when he was a baby, put fiery coal in his mouth uh, because it was another event. Whatever, he had a, a speech impediment. And God says, I will make to you an Elohim. Does that mean that yeah. there were multiple Moseses? This is silly. Let's talk about this word al, Elohim, Okay. Because it's the same word that Jews and Muslims use to identify the true God. Let's talk about why is, so what does that word mean? In fact, it's not just Judaism and Islam, but in fact, in the entire Semitic world, Al means God. In, in Baal, the false God, all these names have that word Al in it. So what does it mean? Let's say Al means God's power. That's what it means. Al is God's power. Yeah. There are many other names for God, but there's a reason why in Genesis chapter 1, only the word Elohim is used for God and no other name. There are many names for God in the Hebrew Bible, but only Elohim is used in that chapter. Why? Because God is the creator of all things. Let's think about this for a moment. The pagan world, understandably, saw experience an earthquake. They saw lightnings. They experienced volcanoes. Right? Mm. And they didn't understand it. They they saw people die all around them. People yeah. just died of their teeth, childbirth. And then they saw other people who were very successful. They saw uh, the people perished in sea. And they thought there were many different powers in the world. Certainly, ice, water, sun, these things were not compatible with each other. So they saw all the powers in the world as, in fact, completely distinct um authorities and agencies. And I understand why. They were completely logical and rational. Mm -hmm. What possibly can the sun have in common with the oceans? What the prophets of blessed memory are always saying is that really all these powers, that's why Elohim, are really from one source only. It really only comes from one source. And although it, it seems to you that there are competing forces here, they're not competing for. So Elohim really, it's, it's, it's not like a, a term of majesty. I know people say that, but that's not what's going on here. But rather it's saying that that, that word is conveying that all the powers are from one source. Echad, they're really all from the God that you created the heavens and the earth. And don't be fooled, don't be misled by what appears to you to be things that are Conflicting. They didn't know what tectonic. So, so when, when, so when the verse says, because I don't want to sound insulting, but the simpleton missionary 
Mrs. Simpleton will come up to the people uh, the individual, a layperson, and say, well, look, here's here's proof, here's evidence of the Trinity. What's evidence? Let us make man in our image. Now, I've always traditionally understood that, and tell me if I'm wrong, that the us, our, is essentially the plural of majesty. Um, I don't think uh, so. But I think you disagree. I think you disagree no, on that No, no, it's really much more plain than that. Let's think about this. I, I, I call the viewers, just listen for a moment. It's really very simple. Because sure. in the text... The text tells us that unlike any other creation, man is um, is binary, which means that we are physical. We're made of the clay of the earth, right? Mm. But then God blew His breath, His whatever His the divine nature was was put into man. So man is both physical. When we see our dog or cat, our pets, we understand them. They want to be safe. They want to eat. They want to have babies. We get all that stuff. But man alone could believe in God. No other animal ever believed in God. So man is made up both of the material and he's made up of the spiritual. He's both. And therefore, we have free will. Your dog is never going to go to heaven. Please don't be offended, all you viewers. Dogs (laughs) don't have a soul. Love them. You can learn from their obedience, but they're not, they're yeah. not, they don't have a dog. So man, God really does call two things in our eyes. This is in Genesis 2. He literally calls the clay of the earth and the spirituality, the breath, together into one and let us make man, because man is both. And therefore, man has free will. He could choose mm. good or he can choose evil. And it's interesting, this term, let us, is only used three times in Tanakh, and it's right here. That means what we do is we can look in the same neighborhood of passages mm. and we'll find that the us comes up again very soon. So we know that God is speaking to the angels in Genesis 1, 26, because after Adam eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he then cannot go into the Garden of Eden, and God calls upon um, fiery angels to prevent man. And it says, God says in Genesis 3.22, let us prevent man from becoming like one of us. That means eating from the tree of life and being being eternal, which then became a problem. The third time, so there's man, the us, is there speaking to an angel. It's in the text, and God is saying us. And you can see it explicitly. You don't need Toby Zinger for this. And a third time is the third attempt by man to somehow achieve equality with God by building a tower that rose up to the heavens. And there, so, 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 in go Genesis ahead, Rabbi. Sorry to you. No, no, no. I just, just because this go is like GPS. Go We're going to triangulate this. In Genesis 11, verse 7, the same thing. God says to the angels, let us go down and confound man so that he speaks different languages to stop him from his effort to try to be divine, to try to achieve equality. And that's, so what you do is it's a GPS. We have three passages. That's it. And they're all in the same place in the Bible. They're in the creation process, the earliest moments, the formidable moments of mankind where man can never step over that line to try to be divine. Yes, every man has a divine spirit, but he is not equal to God. And that's why God summons the the angels, the breath, the very same, because angels are only spiritual. The physical is just the facade. And man is both. He's both physical and spiritual. Same thing in Genesis 3.22. Same thing in Genesis 11.7. All them God is addressing angels. 
I, I've never heard that 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 that, that, that the way you've explained it before, and it's fascinating to me, um, and certainly it refutes the idea of the Trinity. But could By I just way, add I, this? May I for one one permission? I forgive me. You go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. These texts don't even purport to, to prove the Trinity. That means that what what prevents you from coming up with five gods or fifty gods? True. It means there's nothing True. about let us make man that restricts it to three. So, and yeah. people say, but we only know three. Well, maybe it'll be a a new revelation, a progressive revelation next week. There's going to be a fourth person in the Godhead. Mm. Ah, I know nothing about it. It's a progressive <laughs> revelation. You see how foolish this is? It's a, yes, absolutely it's, foolish. The weakest I, I, just, I, don't, I don't want to beat a dying horse on the issue of the royal <laughs> plural or the plural of majesty, but you know, I don't know Hebrew, so I'm, I'm speaking just purely from the perspective of translation, but what I have seen, um, somebody I think like Anthony Buzzard, who's a Unitarian, he's, uh, he's made the argument that in explaining, for example, uh, Genesis uh, 126, let us make man in our own image, he 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 juxtaposes it with the book of Ezra. Uh, he, he, you're obviously familiar that in the book of Ezra, there's a situation where the the man of the, the individuals from um, I think the, the Euphrates they send a letter to to Artaxerxes, and in in the letter, in the reply, the king says something along the line that you know, greetings to you. The letter you sent to us has been read and translated. Now, although the people wrote to the king himself, he's using the word us, you know, in the plural sense. Now, the point being made is that, uh, you know, you've got a lot of these Unitarians that make the argument that similarly in the way that the us and the hour is used in other passages in the Old Testament, particularly when kings and, and rulers use them, similarly, uh, the, the the Hebrew is is almost identical, and so the argument can be made that as, for example, Xerxes makes the claim of the us in the royal plural, uh, the same can be said for God. Would that be a wrong argument? I can't say it's wrong. I, I and there is an idea that God sort of consulted the heavenly body, but I yeah. I always like to go with the most plain, simple explanation. It's just one verse. And it's in context. I don't have to go to Ezra. I, I love Anthony. I know Anthony for 30 years. So, you know, so he's a dear friend. Let me just stay on this. The one okay. text, Genesis 2, 7. And God formed men from the clay of the, from the dust of the ground, right? And he breathed, whatever that means, he breathed into his nose the 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 neshama, the soul of life. By he Adam and Adam, that word Adam. What does that word mean? It's Adamo. Mm. It means clay, but the Adam the nefesh chaya means the answer. You know, instead of going to Ezra, it's like right there in the creation record that Adam is binary. He is both clay mm. and soul which other animals are. Birds don't have a soul. Dogs mm. don't have a soul. So therefore, yes. we, it really is in us. And is it true that idol worshipers throughout history, didn't start with Christianity, we have a record that's going all the way back <laughs> that pagans seize these amorphic texts. And this really takes us back to where our conversation began. So I, people who are heretics, I'm using strong words because I might as well be clear, all heretics do this. They they scour texts trying to find something that they already believe, and they take ambiguous passages, which is true. You do need Genesis 
2, verse 7 to help you understand Genesis one twenty six. Yeah. It's true, So and exploit it. And if you know Genesis 3.22 and Genesis 11.7, it, it, it slams the book on the issue. So mm. Man is, is, has those two qualities. And what are we doing as humans? We are struggling between our desire to serve ourselves, the clay in us, the earthy dog in us. You know, when we say that you're behaving like an animal, it's not a compliment, right? What are we saying yeah. when we say that someone's behaving like an animal? We're saying that you're only um, acting like the clay that other animals were created out of, the earth. And you're not behaving like someone who has a, a soul inside of you. That's what behaving like an animal means. You're behaving like someone who's not aware that there's a God. So if man, only man, has the awareness of God in him, we only have free will. Other animals don't. And we're torn. And our job as those who love the true God that Abraham preached are, therefore, we are called upon to serve and submit, be loyal to, adore, and love only the true God and forsake the physical element uh, and and instead submit to God. If there was no free will, if we didn't have the animal in us, that other part of us, there'd be no possibility for free will and virtue would be impossible. It's amazing. I, I want to I, I move on because time is running out. I want to focus on some of the other core issues. Um, you did allude to the aspect of the angel of the Lord. And I think just to flesh this out, you know, a lot of the Trinitarians, um, Christians obviously believe that uh, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ as he appears uh, before he supposedly incarnated as a human. Now, obviously, this point is disputed by many with good reason. But um, the, the point being made is that, um, you know, the entire doctrine in itself is built from assumption. Now, the point being made is that it appears to be awkward for Trinitarians to believe that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God. Uh, from the beginning of time, and yet he never appears in the Old Testament. Now, obviously, the fact that Jesus plays a very important, um, you know, position in, as the head of the church, the Catholic Church, and in Protestantism, the point being made is, I think, this is the argument that it's not possible that he could not have been around throughout the entire Old Testament times mm -hmm. and not getting involved. So the Trinitarian answer to that question is that, it has to place Jesus in the Old Testament by assumption, and that is that he must be the angel of the Lord. Now, my question to you, um, Rabbi, um, if someone makes this argument, what would be the best refutation of this nonsensical idea uh, that, that is made by, which is extremely common? Uh, so this, where this, the, yes. So this argument, as I said, was made by, was really coined by Justin. It's not in the Christian Bible. The Christian Bible attacks it. In Hebrews mm -hmm. chapter one, that's the whole point of Hebrews chapter one. That the the angels that are found in the Bible are below Jesus. I mean, the Hebrews. That's the whole point of it. But if you want to, we could say, okay, wasn't that a theophany? Yeah. That the angel of the Lord is a kind of a theophany. Um, no, we as have opposed to, to you know, that's just a fancy word. But the angel of the Lord. It let's make it really easy. So actually, the the Torah says in Exodus chapter twenty three verse twenty. Let's just take a look at the most famous angel of the Lord. God says, I send an angel before you, right? 
And it, and it says in verse 21, 23, verse 21, what does the passage say? And you must follow whatever he instructs you to do. Why? He Be careful of his face, of his presence. And listen to his voice. This is verse 21 of chapter 23 of Exodus. Um, and do not rebel against him. Why? Listen to this. He yisa because he cannot forgive you for your sins because my name is in him. That means he's only a messenger. You got mm-hmm. that? The text, yeah. so I could say to you, I'll grant it all. <laughs> Let's take a look at the nature of this angel. This is the angel of the Lord where God says, I'm sending an angel before you, okay? He's going to make a right. We're, Joshua is going to encounter this angel Later on, John, Joshua chapter. Who was this angel? What was this? Who was this angel then? I mean, like a, would it be a messenger? Is, yes, a messenger. This is an angel. Just what it sounds like. It's a it's a spiritual messenger that is. Now we can have a conversation. Why are they messengers? Like, why does God need angels? Like, he couldn't do it himself. It wouldn't be Gabriel. I mean, or, 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 or no, 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 somebody. No, it would be Michael. But but the key Michael, is yeah. the key is I want to stay with what it says in the text. The text in Exodus chapter three verse twenty one tells us about the angel. I didn't write it. Rabbi Tovi Singer didn't write it. It's in the Torah. Mm. Please look it up for yourself. It says that the nature of this angel is he must do everything I tell him to do. He don't rebel against him. Why? Because he can't forgive your sins. He can't. He's an angel. God can forgive sin, but angels can't. Hello, the Christian Bible is all saying that Jesus says, I forgive your sins. Your sins are forgiven. Bingo. So the very Christian argument that if Jesus is forgiving sins, Christians make this argument, that because yeah. Jesus is saying your sin is forgiven, which is a whole different topic, therefore it shows he's God. Well, if that's the case, then he can't be the angel Lord because the Torah says explicitly that this angel Lord can't forgive sins. So you, you see how Christianity is just lies, contradictory lies. lies. And, lies. and you know, yeah, that's why... To be a liar is a Jewish saying. You have to be very smart. Why? Because you have to keep mm. track of all your lies. If you're telling the <laughs> truth, no, this is an old Jewish saying that a, a, a liar has to be very smart if he's successful. Why? Because you've got to keep track of every lie. If you tell the truth and you live a lawful life and you don't fake things, you don't change your driver's mm. license, your passport, you don't engage in criminal, you don't have to be smart. A simple person who sure. lives their life you know, lawfully. But a, a, a person who's a who's a liar, has to be a genius because he has to keep track of all his lies. And what happens if you don't keep track of all your lies? This is how criminals get in trouble because one thing contradicts the other and they can't keep track of all of it. <laughs> but, but that's what Christianity is. It's that's what it is. lie that can keep track of all the lies. It's one filthy, I'm sorry to use these words if you're a Christian, I don't mean to offend you. It's the filthiest lie. And you, the Christian, you're created in the image of God. You have a soul inside of you. I call upon you to repent of this. That, in fact, what Christianity is doing is it can't keep track of its lies. It just makes it up all over the place. And Christians are just not familiar with the text. Well, but what about the fact that just, and I'm going to move on after this, but where they point passages where the angel of the Lord, and I don't have them on me right now, is used interchangeably for God. Uh, with yes, the angel because many, many well, well, how would, would that be an agent? Would that be the kind of agent, the, the law of agency, the Jewish law of agency? Would that it, be correct? It's really just simple. It's a convention in that whoever, it could be a judge, Psalm 82, verse yeah. 6, Exodus 21 and 22, 
that's right after the Ten Commandments. It's talking about judges. Well, you have a difficult dispute. Bring them before the judges. Guess what? In Hebrew, it says Elohim. Judges who are true judges, who are truly espousing the will of God, are called God in Tanakh. And it's all over the place. You have to be very careful. If you don't know the conventions of the Hebrew Bible, I tell you now, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Missionaries will be able to exploit the texts because we don't use them. No one, neither you nor me, would ever talk that way. But in Tanakh, when an angel is acting on behest of God, so then it's the angel could be called God. And pagans will be all over this, the dualists, the idea they exploit this this way, this convention, which is not contemporary. No one talks that way. So yes, it's very true that angels are called God. Judges are called God in the Bible. They just are. You, have, you better know your context. Or you're going to be in an enormous amount of trouble. I think that's a problem with a lot of us, or those who don't know the context and don't know the language, and then they get caught up with these charade that is basically, you know, they, 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 the, the missionaries run circles around them. The other argument, again, is moving further down, the book of Isaiah, uh, behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, he shall be called Emmanuel. Now, obviously, Matthew, I think, 123, um, <laughs> takes the Isaiah, he takes Isaiah, and... Um, um, the, the point being, even, even amongst Unitarians, they use this as a means to suggest that it's in fact reference to Jesus. Now, the point being made, you know, Jesus was never called Emmanuel in his lifetime, but who would you, who, you know, that verse, Isaiah 7, 14, who would that be referring to? Who should bring forth a child? It's in, it's later on in immediately afterwards, it's Isaiah's wife. So, and it's not, it's not, it's not a virgin, right? Because the word is, no, is Alma, not no, Bethula. No, Would no. I be correct? Of course, of course. The word Bethula, Bethul means a virgin. Look, virginity is really important in the Hebrew Bible. It's very important in Judaism. It's just a lot of places. It's very important. It is a, but it's a word, the Alma, not Bethula. Yeah, the Would word is Alma, which means a young woman. It is young women that have babies and are not virgins, therefore. So, so, so here's a deceit. Here's a deceit, Rabbi. A complete fake. They changed the meaning the, the, of the, the word. deceit then, but but the deceit is by biblical translators because they translate as virgin, but they're doing so based, as I understand, on the Greek Septuagint and on Matthew's usage of the word. For example, I think the word is Parthenos. Would it be Parthenos? Is, uh, uh, they're not. I mean, the Septuagint is only the five books of Moses. See, people get this is a card game, and you can get ripped off. You know, there are certain neighborhoods in South Africa, I've been there a number of times, where you can get killed in three seconds and get Absolutely. robbed in a minute, right? Okay, I've been to South Africa, beautiful place, but there are certain neighborhoods you don't dare go into, or else you're going to get yourself killed. If, you, yeah. if you're not willing to, it's not you can be here in Israel, you can be in New York, the place you just don't go in Chicago, you'll get killed. So you get yourself into so much trouble. That's all. You just have to be smart. So, all right. So the text in Isaiah in Isaiah seven fourteen is talking about a young woman. It's young women who have children. The right. sign is not the the conception of the child. The sign is, in fact, the child's maturity. The next verse, butter and honey shall eat when he knows to reject bad, when he knows to reject evil and choose good. For before the child knows to reject uh, bad and choose good, these two kings will be utterly destroyed. What's the context? It's a mm. civil war that's going on 2,700 years ago during the Assyrian Empire where the, where 
the uh, uh, Damascus, which means Syria, allied itself with the northern kingdom of Israel, attacked the southern kingdom. And Isaiah was promising Ahaz that there's going to be a child that's going to be born. And before the child matures, these two kings will be out the, the, the siege will be over, will have been ended. What does this have to do with Jesus? This is all ridiculous. Talk about a young woman. And how does Isaiah chapter 8 begin? It, it's Isaiah takes a wife, a woman, who is a prophetess herself. She is also a prophet. And they have a baby. And Isaiah is then, whereas the mother is told to name Emmanuel, the Hebrew is in the feminine, the Karachimo Emmanuel, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He is told, Isaiah is told to call the son Mashar Shalal Hashbaz, which means quicken the loot, uh, hasten the booty. And when will this happen? Before the child can either say daddy and mommy, these two kings, Damascus and the northern king, will be utterly destroyed. It's right there in the plain text. Now, what happened? This is very sinister. The, the original Septuagint, this is what no one gets. The original Septuagint is only the five books of Moses. A, a, a yeah. Greek translation of that's, that was done by 72 learned people, and it's from the ancient world, about 256 BCE, more than 2,200 years ago. Okay, 72 learned Jews translated the five books of Moses for the famous library in Alexandria. And that was called Septuagint. This is attested to everywhere. It's all over the place. We have a letter of Aristides, Josephus, Talmud. It's, it's very famous. I mean, what subsequently occurred was people went ahead and started creating translations of the text that of not just the five books of Moses, but of other books. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened is the church then is staring down a huge problem. And the problem they had was that, the, that there's crimes all over the New Testament. New Testament is a crime scene. It's like you know, you're a lawyer, you know what happens. You come to a crime scene, there's a dead guy with a knife in him, and everything's broken, there's blood all over. That's a whole big crime scene, okay, of just criminal behavior. So what did they do? The church father origins, a third century church father, is really a genius, brilliant guy. He went and created a Greek translation of Tanakh, to, in order to vindicate, in order to comport, in order to bolster, in order to support the lies in the Christian Bible. So, and they called it the Septuagint. I don't know if you understand how crazy this is. It means you can have a King James that was finished in 1611, right? But subsequent yes. translations like the New International Version, New American Standard, they don't call themselves King James. Well, imagine if everyone else called themselves the King James. That's what happened. So, the Christian translations, which were there really to use the bleach that criminals use to wash down fingerprints. That's what criminals do. They're fingerprints and they put the gun in bleach to get rid of the fingerprints so you can forensically look at it and find out who the criminal is. The Septuagint is a Greek, it is a Christian iteration in order to wipe away all the lies, all the fake, all of this. And I want to say this to Muslims for a moment. Actually, I want to say this to Christians. Because I know what Christians are going to say, and I want to tell you that you, I want to speak to you, the Christian, with all the love of my heart. I think well, Muslims believe firmly the Isa that Jesus was a not just the highest form of prophet, but he was born of a virgin. So let me tell you, the Christian, this if you ask a Muslim, tell me, why do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? No Muslim would ever tell you because it says it in Matthew 123. Any no. Muslim would say, because it says it in Matthew 123, we'd be sent to a psychiatrist. 
Muslims are <laughs> on to this. They know this. They understand Semitic languages. They know that this is a group. Muslims believe that Jesus was born of a virgin because it says so explicitly in the Quran. And not because of Matthew. So I, I tell you the Christian, and I tell you the Muslim who may not be a scholar, and that's okay, you know, we all have people who need to learn more, that no Muslim believes this. No Muslim believes that Jesus was born of a virgin because Matthew said so. No. Or because it's a quote in Isaiah 7.14. Muslims know this. Muslim scholars know that the, their source for it is the Quran. That's why Jews don't deal with the Islamic part. We're only interested in the Christian crime against the Hebrew Bible. This is a total fake. Mm. I, I want to move on just to, because time's running out, Rabbi, but I just want to wrap up with kind of two main passages thereafter. Um, Isaiah 9, 6, and of course, uh, we'll go to the book of Daniel, but Isaiah 9, 6, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I've heard your arguments, but a lot of people have never heard this. Trinitarians, um, you know, many of them admit that that Jesus is never called the Everlasting Father, um, and 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 the point being made is that if you look at this particular verse, it if you want to accept the idea that he's mighty God and everlasting Father, it kind of introduces this element of modalism. Um, would I be correct, as I've seen that the word mighty God is better translated as, uh, you know, I think Martin Luther James Moffat's translation they translated as uh, the El Gibor, uh, more particularly a mighty hero or not almighty God, but for example, um, in, in, the, in the sense that, um, you know, you've, you've got, for example, in Ezekiel, uh, there's a reference, I believe, to the Babylonian king. There the word is El Gibor, or El, the ruler, but the point being made, nobody translates that as a God in the sense. So the question again, do we not see dishonesty in translation? Your, your take on this particular verse quickly. Quickly, huh? <laughs> well, well, I mean, you, 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 we, we, we want to wrap up, but I mean, the point is we know, want to deal with the core so issues. Sure, sure. The whole thing so I don't want to put Jennifer the, Look, you need to know this. You, the viewer, need to know yeah. this. whole thing is such a fake, such a fraud, that the New Testament never even thought of this. That means if, in fact, Isaiah 9, verse 6 is talking about Jesus, and it's telling us that he'll be divine, are you saying Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, um, Paul, whoever wrote the epistles of John, Peter, no one thought about this. I mean, this was a later fake crime. This is second century. It's not even quoted in the Christian Bible because they weren't dumb enough to come up with this one. This is a later iteration. Okay, So that should give you a hint. Two, what the church did was, this is talking about Hezekiah HaMelech, King Hezekiah, really a great Davidic king, a, a, a great, great grandson of King David. That's the context. The context is that Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire has destroyed 185,000 soldiers are killed. Now, Hezekiah, Chizkiyahu in Hebrew, you know what his name means? Chizkiyahu means the mighty God. The mighty God. <laughs> look, look it up for yourself. Now, this is called a theophoric method. A theophoric method means, this is all over Tanakh, including my own name. Theophoric method is that people are named with divine names. Elijah is a divine name, the Lord God. That's what Elijah means. That means we're supposed to worship Elijah, God forbid. Ailey means my God. means Ailey is God. The priest is God. Only, not every Jewish name, but in most, Daniel, 
God judges. Isn't Daniel's divine? So be very, very careful here. What the church did was all the verbs in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this passage is 9-5 in the Hebrew Bible. I'm not going into why, but just know it's, yeah. it's a different number. All the verbs are made in the future tense in the Christian Bibles. That means a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will be placed on the shoulder, his name will be called. It's all fake. It really says a child was given to us. It's talking about an event that already occurred. A son has been given. So it's in the past tense. It's not something. In it's the not a future. prophecy about the future. Of course not. And I bet even even though it uses a future tense, even though no, it, it doesn't use a future, future tense. tense. That's a fake. That's that means that's only in the translation you find the future tense. It's okay. not in the Hebrew. So my friends, all you have to do is by Yikra Shemo, by Yikra is how the book of Leviticus begins. You could do this online. You don't need to trust me. You, the viewer, might think, oh, this rabbi doesn't like Christians. So <laughs> look it up for yourself. <laughs> the rabbi is biased, whatever. So you have a Muslim and a Jew who both don't like Christianity. Okay, so let's do this. So I want to empower you. All you have to do is look up the word Vayikra, okay? Your King James Bible translated name shall be called, okay? So please look up anywhere that word appears in the Hebrew Bible. And I could tell you now that word appears in the Jewish scriptures, oh, 209 times, 209 times, bingo. In fact, that's how the book of Leviticus begins. And it's always was called. Why did your Christian Bible change all the verbs into the into the future tense? How did you corrupt the text? Why? Because you're trying to create a prophecy out of a text that's telling us about an event that has occurred. The New International Version goes nuclear on this. And actually, it doesn't even say, and his name shall be called, but it just says, it shall be called. It keeps out the word name. It does not in the NIV. A number of Bible, corrupt Bibles mm -hmm. even amp this up further. So that's, first of all, if you don't know this, you're going to get an enormous amount of trouble. We have, please read Isaiah 36 and 37. We have the event repeated again, but in greater detail. Please see 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. We have repeated over again. Please see 2 Chronicles chapter 29. It's all there. This, is, this event in history was marvelous. Who is the hero here? The hero is Hezekiah, who's a very great king. He was, the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 18, he was the greatest Davidic king that ever lived. And Hezekiah inspired the nation that they would turn to God. He said, trust in the Lord. 185,000 Syrian soldiers surrounding Jerusalem, and, and Hezekiah says, no, 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 put your trust in God. It's all going to be okay. Now, here's where it even gets crazier. Vayikra Shimon, this is, I confess, a little complicated, but well, I, I can't hide it from you. Vayikra Shimon is in the, in the active voice, not in the passive voice. It doesn't mean his name um, was called. To say that in Hebrew, would say Vinikra Shemo. Vayikra Shemo, the text really reads the following way. His, and the, the great advisor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, called his name the Prince of Peace. Mm. That's the proper translation. I see. And you know, it's interesting. There are Muslim Hebraists that actually catch on to this, and I'm very proud of them. 
I mean, but you have to know your grammar. Would mighty hero be correct? Mighty hero, would that be a correct translation? As uh, Martin Luther translated it, I think Moffat, uh, Edgar Goodspeed as well. El Gibor, these are really two simple words, okay? This, this is not yeah. like you need an opinion. There's not some odd, strange word. El Gibor means mighty God. Mighty right. God. I mean, you want to look, it's very important that people are really sure about these things. We don't need that anti Semite Luther. We don't need any of this stuff. By the way, this is not in the Septuagint. You should know the Septuagint okay. doesn't quote this. You know what? That's a crazy. I never reveal this on air. And I'll do it with you. I never did this in another show. If you go to the Septuagint, all these names of God don't even exist. So if the Christians wow. think that the Septuagint is reliable, why doesn't the Septuagint read this? The Septuagint says the government government is upon his shoulder and his name is called. It just says messenger of great counsel. I'm just going from the Greek. For I will bring peace upon the princes to the health of him. That means it's all not in the Septuagint. So, so does that mean clar clarify this? You're saying the Septuagint doesn't have it. it. It doesn't have that at all. No, no, no. No, because I've Septuagint never known that. A, I'm no. I'm doing this for you, sweetheart. I do this for you. I'm giving you. Thank you. I, I appreciate I don't that. Think, well, you need no one. No, you can. All you have to please, please, you, the viewer, don't trust me. Don't trust me. Not right now. Not yet. Okay. I need to prove myself. I beg you. Go online. Now you're saying, but I don't read Greek. You don't need to. Why? Septuagint's been translated into English. Okay. If you're listening to me, it means you understand English. Look up the English translation of the Septuagint on Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And you'll notice it's not there. You Christians are arguing, you Christians are arguing that the Septuagint, which is ridiculous, is superior to the Hebrew. I mean, how can a translation be better than that? But I'll say, I'll concede your point, your ridiculous point. Then you're in more trouble because there is this doesn't even exist in the Septuagint. The Septuagint has a lot of impurities, meaning there's not just criminal things, but there are also other things. I'm not going to, you want to keep this tight. The Septuagint has just a lot of stuff that, because what they did was there were just so many, so many Greek, Greek, Greek translations, and basically some people left it out, and basically the church molds it together and forgets to correct everything. That's what really happens. But if you want to trust your Septuagint, if you love your Septuagint so much, how come it's yeah. not in the Septuagint? Hello and good night. Hello and good sure. night. And I'm revealing this now. I do a lot of shows. because I'm interviewed a lot. I think this is the first show I ever revealed this on, ever. So please look it up. Go on your Google. I'll Go. certainly, I'll certainly make that show. Uh, we, 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 if we can, I'll get up. We, we will probably get get that up um, for purposes of broadcasting. I just want to ask you this because we we had we we we've gone way beyond our time. If there are two words, just two quick qu questions, two words to describe Christianity, two words, what would you say? A corruption of the truth. Corruption of the truth. Of the truth. Yeah, because that's what it is. You know, you've called it idolatry in the past. Oh, I mean, it's, it's 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 idolatry. Would you say Christianity is idolatry? But it's worse than other forms of idolatry. If someone's bowing down to statues, it's it's foolish, of course, and it's sinful. But it's it's you're at least not dragging God into it. You bow, a person. I saw it. I lived in the Far East. I saw people bowing down to statues. I saw it all over the place. So mm -hmm. that's that's a very grave sin, and one must repent of such a sin. But to drag the true God, and then say, "I believe in the true God, and I believe that He has a partner," 
That means it's an adultery. It means Christians, what is so, this is counterintuitive, but think about this. Christians really truly believe in God created the heaven and earth. They really do. But in addition, they add in a partnership. They mm. add into it a girlfriend who they get text messages with and meet in a hotel room. And I don't, I'm using this grotesque language because Tanakh, the prophets of blessed memory, refer to idolatry, this form of it, as adultery. Because you are Christians, mm. the reason why you're held accountable for this crime is that you are draining God into your idolatry. You're pulling yeah. him in, and therefore you're defiling the true one true God. And I call upon Christians to consider what you've heard and to repent of this, to turn away and stop trusting in the church. Stop trusting in the translations. Trust in one God. It says openly, Psalm mm. 146, verse 3, Do not put your trust in princes or the son of man where there is no salvation. It says it openly, there's no salvation in the Son of Man. So why are you worshiping him? I plead with you to repent of this. Thank you. Having said that, um, you've written two books, I think, for the South African audience. Well, two major uh, tomes, Let's Get Biblical. Um, I, I just want you to, to, to share with the audience um, and the viewers out there, uh, where, where, could they, where could the viewers get a copy of Let's Get Biblical? And what would you recommend as a good um, study Bible translation for the student, for the scholar, for the individual that wants to, for example, challenge and counter the missionary onslaught, what would you recommend? Right. So my books are on our website, outreachjudaism.org, O-R-G. You can go on Amazon. That's a really easy. They're on Amazon, Amazon, right? Yeah, on Amazon. It, it, what it is, it's just a thousand page book and we're just too big. So divided into two parts. Um, um, now, translation is always treason, meaning a translation is a is a human commentary. You must know that, okay? Listen yeah. carefully. Translation is a human commentary. Listen carefully. Greek and, excuse me, Hebrew and English are not in the same family of language. Hebrew and Arabic are very similar. It's the same family. but And therefore, there are just idioms in Hebrew which don't exist in English. So the translator has to be, with the best interest at heart, has to be very creative because it just reads totally different. Same thing with Arabic. If you try and take an Arabic text mm. and translate English, you can't do it word for word. It wouldn't make any, it would be wouldn't make sense. nonsensical. No. Yeah. Of course, the idioms, there are implied words, there's no art, indefinite art. Forget about it. It can't be done. The translator, it has to do a lot of, he, there's no such thing as word for word. Every translation is a commentary. You have to think this way. The best to go to is Art Scroll. A-R-T-C-R-O-L-L. Artscroll.com. They're the largest Jewish publishers in the world. And in fact, when you get yeah. their Bible, you can have the Hebrew and you can have the English. If you can afford it, if you if you can invest in this. So Art Scroll either has a, a single volume, a Tanakh, Big, okay? Where you have Hebrew, English, and you have a little bit of commentary on the bottom. Little, very little. If you can afford it, invest in their individual volumes, which means they have a separate volume of Isaiah, a separate volume of the Torah, a separate volume of Psalms. And therefore, the top, you have the text itself, English, Hebrew, and Three quarters of page is just the commentaries to help you understand the mm. text because it's not that easy. I mean, Tanakh, 
it's it's not always that simple because you need to be a little bit of a scholar, not to invent anything, but just to put the text together. And that would be yeah. the best thing to do because then you have all the super commentaries who tended to write the tafsir. They tend to write in a very terse, truncated way. And you need someone to not just yes. translate the tafsir, but to, you know, when I was in Indonesia, I, I, I had many Muslims that would come to the classes I would give. And I, made a deal with number Muslims to teach me Arabic and I would teach them Hebrew. And the reason I wanted to learn Arabic was I really, there are many tafsir that would never translate into English and I wanted to be able to read it. There's a lot of work because Arabic is more difficult than Hebrew, more complicated. But uh, the, tra- the commentaries are very important because they, they bring it all together and line it all up so that you can engage in it. So that would be the ideal thing to do. Okay. In fact, I'll send you the links if you'd like. Yeah, we, 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 if you can send us the links, we'll certainly share it with the, with yeah. the viewers out there for them to access. And lastly, since we've got a, a significantly large Muslim audience uh, viewership uh, that are viewing this, this program, any advice that you would give them in terms of the steps that they should take in combating the kind of theological fraud that are that that is manifest large by by missionaries uh, that are probably hoodwinking them with these kind of fallacious arguments and reasoning, what would the way be forward in relation to that? Look, if if you go to the army, you wouldn't take a weapon if you weren't trained in using a weapon. Yeah. If if you are defending God, the true God, you have to know the text, and you need to know the primary text. And you notice one of the things I don't do is I don't quote scholars. A lot of people do. Well, this scholar, I'm not interested in I want to help you to know the original text. So if you're not prepared, if you're not, there's a very important Jewish tradition. It's the most wonderful thing to show heretics, show people who are non-believers, show them why they're wrong and bring them back to a true belief. Mm. But don't dare do it if you're not thoroughly prepared. Because if you're not prepared, you're going to start quoting things you're not thoroughly familiar with. You have to know your original text. You have to know the faith that you believe in. You better know it very, very well. It's not enough to just do a recital. You have to know the original text. Mm. You have to know the Hebrew text very, very well. And you have to know the Christian text very, very well. If you are not armed, if you are not thoroughly Train. It's a great thing to study. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? But I would say yeah. to you that the mistake people make is that they are not prepared. They kind of read one thing or they know like a couple of things and they're not ready. And if you don't know, you're you're gonna fall for the counterfeit. It's it's not complicated. Just so you need study. Things. You need study, yeah, you need you research, can, and you need a lot yeah, of, uh, of reading. You use weapons if you're no, you of course, you have to train yourself. You have to be knowledgeable in this, and it means devoting yourself to study these texts that are sacred, and some of them are false and are alien, are spiritually grotesque. And if it doesn't bother you to read these texts of Paul, if it doesn't bother you, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> I mean, spiritually. <laughs> I mean, if, if you read Paul and it doesn't bother you, that means you have to repent because <laughs> that means that's something not right. <laughs> I mean, these, so it's going to bother you a little bit when you start yeah. to read these Christian texts. So, but you need to know them very, very well in order to engage. Well, I want to thank you, Rabbi. That uh, that's been a fascinating engagement with you. Um, I, I really learned so much. It, I always listen to you, um, and I think this is the first time we actually having this 
conversation between us. Uh, I want to wish you uh, shalom and greetings of peace. And I do see you as a man of God and certainly someone that we can engage with in the future. We hope to have more such programs on other issues uh, relating to your particular expertise on this particular subject. And we hope to have you again in the future. I look forward to that. Thank you. And to all of you, and alaikum. Walaikum salam. And that, that was it. And that's all we have for this evening, folks. This was a special discussion, a conversation with Rabbi Tobias Singer. He's an American Orthodox rabbi. He's the founder and director of Outreach Judaism. He's written two monumental tomes called Let's Get Biblical. It's available on his website, but you can get it on, um, on Amazon. Let's Get Biblical. We'll send you the link. And till next time, uh, we wish you greetings of peace. Assalamu alaikum. And if you're traveling, have a safe journey home.